Welcome to The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world, the new satirical podcast from Times Online, edition number one, Monday, October the 15th, 2007, with me, Andy Zaltzman, here in London, and in America, John Oliver. Hello, Andy. Hello, world. But most importantly, hello, Andy. (laughs) Thanks, John. Uh, So, how is America? It's doing its best. All anyone can ask of the lab. Inside today's multi-section bugle, special news feature on the war on terror. Are you bored of it too, or is peace overrated? Entertainment, the Nobel Prize is upon us. We now know all the individual category winners, but who will be declared overall Nobel Champion of the World 2007? As with any newspaper, even an audio newspaper like this, uh, some sections do go straight in the bin. Today, those sections are the travel section. Will people please stop going to Heathrow Airport? It was designed by Hieronymus Bosch. Just recycle it. And also in the bin is the special lifestyle section, you and your stationery. Why is it in there, Andy? That is a needlessly heavy piece of sound. So, today's top news story, Iraq. How well is it actually going? Quite badly, I would say. Give it time, Andy. <laughs> give it time. I have given it quite a lot of time. Well, just give it a bit more time. Right. You never know, it might yet surprise you. I just think, as a taxpayer and consumer of the war in Iraq, I have been disappointed with the war that I've received. You have to support the concept of time, Andy. You have to support our time. <laughs> if you're not for that, what are you for? You're for the nihilistic view of non-consensual time that the terrorists are proposing. Right. I think you've been in America too long now, John. They make some convincing arguments here. Uh, Well, the consensus in Britain is that so far Iraq uh, is only scoring 2.3 out of 10, which is bad for any war. Yeah, that's not a great score. Um, But there has been an announcement that British troops will be reduced to 2,500 uh, next year. Uh, how many American troops are there there, John? Well, there are 168,000, so that is just the latest slap in the face from an already very red American face <laughs> at the moment. So they're really getting stuck in. That's a lot of soldiers. Well, the big, the big question, I guess, is could Iraq be going any worse? And this was probably this was probably best pointed out by the president himself, the self-styled 43rd president of the United States. Uh, when he said in a press conference that Iraq is, in fact, like Vietnam, but in a good way. Now, that is not scraping the bottom of the barrel, Andy. That's going through the barrel and tunnelling straight into the floor, possibly into an old antique barrel that you didn't know was there, and getting to the bottom of that. And then going through that into a mains electricity cable. (laughs) That's right. And if you want to know, Andy, how much balls it takes to say a thing like, it's like Vietnam, but in a good way, it's three balls. (laughs) You need an extra ball, and luckily this president has that extra ball and is willing to use it in a time of war. I'm very worried about this plan to fly the troops home because um, I'm not in in favour of the Iraq war, but I think the environment is now the big issue that we really need to address. And I think that it's reached the stage where the environmental damage of flying the troops home now outweighs the dangers of leaving them there. So I think they're either going to have to just try and blend in with the locals or fight their way back across land. Well, the exit strategy is quite a big issue, because Bush has said that uh, if we leave now, the enemy will follow us home. Uh, So any withdrawal will have to throw them off the scent, I guess (laughs) you're implying. But the the enemy do know where America live. That's the thing. They're they're aware. They're number one Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) They're Canada's very noisy neighbour. Can they not sort of set up some kind of decoy 
uh, like people do with uh, paparazzi. So maybe some American troops can just head off to Australia and hope that the terrorists follow them there. That is a good And then the idea. real American army goes home. That is a unnoticed. good idea. That, that clicking on the line was probably the Pentagon picking that idea up. <laughs> Um, but the, the biggest withdrawal, Andy, has been from Iceland. Uh, I don't know if you saw that this week. They announced uh, their formal withdrawal from the Coalition of the Willing, to which their contribution was one troop. That is a disaster. It's a 100% withdrawal. The entire Icelandic, Isish, whatever they call themselves, it hardly seems to matter now. They're not involved. They're not a team player. That, they've pulled their entire army out. Well, what there should be, though... Let the record show this. There should still be a veterans parade in the future. Every time she goes to the shops or goes for a little stroll somewhere, that should be a parade. What it does give you is spectacularly absolute results. That's a 100% withdrawal from Iceland. And even asking how the Icelandic army is doing, maybe 100% of the Icelandic army was a bit peckish. John, uh, how much of America is still behind President Bush and his little jaunt? Well, it's probably quicker to give you names, Andy, now. <laughs> and it's not even the whole Bush family anymore. No, America <laughs> is not not enjoying this spectacular fall from grace. Uh, his approval ratings, I believe, are as low as they have been yet. And they have been pretty low. Uh, so, no, America is not too happy with how things are going. But one positive thing has come out of this situation, Andy. Which is what? The US, this is a fact, and it's not one of those false facts, it's a true one, is now running out of bullets. One billion bullets fired per year by Americans, Andy. They said it couldn't be done. (laughs) They said they could make them faster than Americans could fire them, but they have been proven wrong. Now, Bush's government have uh, hit back by saying that's not actually that big a figure, especially if you think of a much bigger number to compare it to. That is true. and Well, it's only, what, about three bullets per American? Yeah, it's not that. And there must be some Americans who don't use any bullets and some who use a lot. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, if you're an average man in the street... I mean, you've been living in America now for almost 18 months. How how many bullets have you fired in that time? Well, I've fired probably, ooh, got about 22 bullets. But, you know, 19 of them were into the air. Only three were at other people. Yeah, well, that was that in that incident at the... uh, motorway service station correct right best brush over that there's only one thing in a war more foolish than running out of bullets and that is to tell your enemy that you have run out of bullets. that's right that is a tactical error of quite magnificent proportions i think it does also come down to the uh problem that america been operating a shoot first hold court martials later policy it works fine andy now (laughs) there, there is there is a genuine consequence to this which is that police forces in particular the nypd to train their Uh, police officers now, they're having to use paintball guns, which is a magnificent idea. They should have them now for all the police. Take the guns from them and give them paintball guns. What is the worst thing that's going to happen to an innocent black man in Harlem? (laughs) He's going to end up looking like a work-in-progress Jackson Pollock. Congratulations, Officer O'Reilly. Yet another masterpiece. Well, thank you very much. It's just so hard to know when it's finished. Uh, It certainly might have solved a few problems over here if a Brazilian man had had his head painted red, orange, green, yellow and blue. I think really the only excuse they've got left for Iraq now uh, is that it was supposed to be best of three, so they had to have the second Iraq war, and there was uh, a legal precedent with this with the world wars. They were best of three. That's correct. In fact, there was a third world war in the 1970s, but because we were 2-0 up, the press didn't report it. Yeah, it was played behind closed doors. Germany actually won, and they now run Kent County Council. So, moving on to other news now. 
And in Britain, John, I don't know if this has been big news in America, uh, Gordon Brown's honeymoon period has unceremoniously ended in a hail of abuse from his political enemies uh, and accusations of policy stealing. Uh, has this registered much in the States, or do they still think Blair is in charge? If you, to, do you know what? I was asked a question pretty much along that lines this morning on the radio. <laughs> if you listen now to that slight buzzing sound, that is the buzz of America talking about Gordon Brown's taxation pre-budget. Because we all love uh, we all love pre-budget taxation. I mean, I, it's one of those moments in the year, like the FA Cup final, that as a kid you oh, look boy. forward to for oh, weeks boy. in advance. Particularly, I mean, in the old days there wasn't so much economics on telly so the pre-budget statement was you know a big thing because now you know we've got these 24-hour economics channels it's not quite so special but it still has that little frisson of anticipation that's right as, as he stands there and someone throws a football at his head and he's saying i'm gordon brown i used to be chancellor but more than anything uh, the recent uh, the recent weeks of politics uh, in england have uh, really proved to the country that no one really cares uh, about party politics anymore, we're alienated. This is proved by the fact that there are more suicides during party conference season than during the rest of the year put together. Now, that is a lie, but my point stands. Yeah, I mean, it's a very powerful lie, so there must be something to it. The government, they've, been, uh, they've offered to raise the inheritance tax threshold for married couples, married couples very much in the uh, sights of all political parties. Uh, the Tories offered tax breaks to married couples earlier this year on the grounds that marriage is the bedrock of Britain, the bedrock of British society, therefore it must be financially Correct. rewarded by the state. And I fully yes. endorse this. Uh, a lot of people get married because they love each other. I think this is weak. I got married three years ago, but I got married because I love my country. And I thought of all the wonderful things that Britain has done for me over the 33 years I've been in it. Uh, when I was um, only eight years old, for example, uh, 1982, Britain saved me from being invaded by Argentina albeit that Argentina used cheap maps and missed by 15,000 miles. But I thought Britain's done so much for me, it's time for me to repay Britain now by contributing to its bedrock and getting married. So I got down on my bendy knee and I said to my now lady wife, I said, darling, I love Britain. Would you do me the honour of helping make Britain an even more magnificent nation? And she said, of course I will. I love Britain too. And we shook hands and we sang Rule Britannia. And we'd reminisced on when it was that we'd realised that we both really loved Britain. It had been at a party at university when we were both pissed off our faces. And she was going out with Germany at the time. I had a bit of a thing for France, but we've worked through it. I was at that wedding, Andy, and that is why I had my face painted like the Union Jack and kept screaming, God save the Queen. <laughs> that was also why I kept screaming, I miss Princess Diana as well, because I do. <laughs> Every day is difficult. Actually, has the um, inquest into um, Diana's alleged death been big news in the states actually it has been quite big news and uh, american people do tend to think that we really do miss her because i guess they saw all of those uh, shots of mass mourning 10 years ago and they're quite delicate around mentioning it so whenever anyone mentions diana they'll kind of shoot an awkward glance over <laughs> to you as if as if your mother's just died you go oh, it's it's okay we, we've got over it now it has been 10 years um, but I, I and the American people am extremely pleased that there is yet another inquest. It's definitely what Diana would have wanted. In fact, I think there should be an inquest for each year that she would have been alive, and indeed should have been alive were she not taken from us all so quickly. So there should be 340 inquests. And then you've got to have... Because she would have found a way to live that long, Andy, powered only by <laughs> compassion. 
Uh, another piece of news, Andy, is, of course, Armenia and the genocide that wasn't. Uh, has that caught on back in Britain? It's been a bit of a story uh, here, certainly the top genocide story of the week. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess what happens, for those of you that don't know, is that uh, in the year 2000, Bush referred to the massacre of 1.5 million Armenians by Turkey as a genocide. But in his defence, he wasn't to know when he stated that as a fact, that an even bigger fact would emerge that of Turkey's usefulness to the current Iraq war. And that is a huge fact. <laughs> that is a massive fact. And so Bush is uh, back down saying, no, it wasn't actually genocide. Is this partly because he's covering his own back for the numbers of deaths he's caused? Well, no, it's really this is the first piece of really great news from the Iraq war, Andy, because the current Iraq war has, in a way, prevented a 100-year-old genocide from ever having happened. <laughs> And that is a huge positive of both Bush and Blair's decision to go there. Yes, they've killed thousands of Iraqis, but in a way, they've saved 1.5 million Armenians from being subject to a genocide. And if that doesn't win them the Nobel Peace Prize, then nothing will. 1.5 million Armenians, Andy. They're heroes. It just seems a shame that they didn't have the courage to be public with their real reasons for the Iraq war being to save so many innocents. Armenian lives in the I, early 20th century. I don't know, Andy, because I would have been right behind them, and that would have made those marches look pretty stupid. What do you hate about Armenians who are already dead? <laughs> and our, our final uh, other news story is that archaeologists in Rome claim to have uncovered what they think is a lost epistle of St Paul. Uh, now, the late St Paul was a compulsive epistle writer, as we know, although today only 14 of his many thousands of epistles have appeared in print in a book first published um, several years ago now uh, called Bible 2, the New Testament. The new epistle is from St Paul to his local council and has been translated from the original Greek by Professor Albin Strange of the Nantwich Institute of Biblical Studies. And it reads like this. Dear sir or madam, where is my bin? I asked for a new bin three weeks ago. I have not received that bin. Where is my bin? The people who live down the road at number 53 stole my bin. They've now painted 53 on it, so I can't steal it back. Maybe in the old days I would have done, but I'm a changed man. The current situation is untenable. I need a bin. I'm trying to found a major religion. I do not have time to dispute the provision of basic amenities. Give me a bin. Give me a bin. Give me a bin. Preferably a wheelie bin. Give me a bin. Regards, <coughs> Paul. So I don't know what message we can learn from this epistle of St Paul to the local council. Do you know what I take from that yep. parable, Andy? Uh, I take from that that you lost your bin. <laughs> <laughs> you're, saying, you're saying that I'm saying what happened to me in the form of uh, a faked epistle from St Paul. I'm saying you bin. haven't even changed the number of the house <laughs> of the person you believe stole your bin. I don't believe it, John. It's got the same dent in the lid that our old one had. I'm saying <laughs> you haven't even changed the number. Not by one. Just don't mention the road. Don't <laughs> want to mention the road name, John. But we do now have a new bin. This is a private gripe, Andy. Don't take it onto the airwaves. Bugle letters and emails. There is no letter section in this edition of the Bugle because it is the first edition of the Bugle and therefore none of you have had the opportunity to write in. However, in future editions we will be responding to your letters or more likely emails. So do send them in to... Uh, the bugle at timesonline.co.uk. 
So, from next week's show, you will have the rare opportunity to ask a genuine American citizen, of which there are literally thousands walking around here, anything you wish. Just uh, send your question to thebugle at timesonline.co.uk, and every week, a different American will be happy to answer your queries. Bugle feature article. Now it's time for a special news feature. What is torture? Well... I'll tell you what it's not, Andy. It's not anything that we're involved in at the moment. In fact, that should be the new dictionary definition of torture. That which we do not do. The Oxford English Dictionary shouldn't have put it better themselves. But it turns out that uh, when you put real pressure onto it, the word torture is a lot more bendy than it actually claims to be. That's and ironic. It's been rendered completely meaningless now, uh, torture, and with the word torture currently incapacitated, other words have been promoted to fill the void. So simulated drowning, uh, we hear, is now enhanced interrogation. Slapping an inmate <laughs> around the head is horseplay. <laughs> Sleep deprivation is nocturnal insistence. And applying electrodes to the testicles is turbo-questioning. <laughs> Uh, that sounds like the kind of uh, um, euphemisms you get in rugby commentaries. For a little bit of argy-bargy <laughs> as someone's head comes clean out of a mall. That is pretty much what's happening at the moment uh, in, uh, in Congress. And Dana Perino, the uh, US press secretary, sa- uh, said uh, of the, all the uh, secrecy around what we're actually doing uh, to these suspects, she said, it's secret for a reason. It's not secret just because we want it to be secret. It's secret because it's classified. Now, that would seem like <laughs> that would seem like a tautology at first, second and 19th glance. But look at it one more time, Andy, because it isn't. This government does not tautologize. They would never do that to words. But the uh, the whole human rights angle is uh, is obviously quite uh, a potent one in uh, the war on terror. I know the whole issue of human rights is increasingly difficult because there are more humans in the world than ever before, but unfortunately only the same number of rights to go around. Mm-hmm. So some people will miss out. Don't blame the government. Blame maths. And I guess human rights has become a bit like musical chairs, That uh, and you've just got to hope that when the music stops, your chair doesn't have wires coming out of it. Absolutely. It's very important. Now, also, the uh, American government have argued that uh, the reason that we should not reveal our torture or indeed not torture methods uh, is that the enemy by finding out would train to withstand them the enemy would adapt they would adapt and they're absolutely right because if you beat them andy they will develop harder skin if you shove their head in water they will develop gills because apparently andy this is the one single area where republicans do believe in evolution The uh, the home front and the war on terror uh, has been going tremendously well. The uh, chief of the Metropolitan Police in London has warned that terror plots are growing, uh, which is bad news. But I guess, you know, the pro-war movement would say, well, think how many more terror plots there would be if we hadn't stamped out so much of al-Qaeda and anti-Western fundamentalism by liberating Iraq. Very hard to argue with that kind of logic. But uh, So the government's been passing all these draconian laws, as they have uh, in America. Um, they're now wanting to extend 28-day detention without trial. I thought they didn't apply to me, John, because I've taken the very sensible precaution of being white. So I'd assume that I was in the clear. But I found out they do actually apply to me when I accidentally committed uh, a bit of terror. Um, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was walking through Westminster, innocently playing myself at scissors, paper, stone, as you do, when uh, in the process of doing scissors on stone, I found myself flicking a V sign at the Houses of Parliament whilst brandishing my fist, which I thought could be considered an act 
of illegal protest within the one-kilometre exclusion zone of the home of democracy within which you're no longer allowed to democratically protest without prior permission. So I thought, I could be a terrorist. So I then stopped and searched myself under the new stop-and-search powers. I found myself to be in possession of a biscuit in the shape of the American flag, which I thought I might eat in quite an aggressive manner in an American's face. So I then interned myself without trial for several weeks, still felt a bit of a terrorist. I then flew myself on a secret CIA flight to an unspecified North African location, beat myself up quite badly, submerged myself up to my neck in water and mercilessly lampooned my own love of cricket. Now, at the end of that, of course, it turned out that I wasn't actually a terrorist. But, John, it just goes Mm. to show, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, you really do love your country, Andy, and you want to keep it safe from yourself. I do. I think, you know... I know I I was innocent, but the point is, I didn't know that until I found it out. Exactly. Governments in Britain and America have admitted some mistakes have been made, and it's a war, mistakes are going to be made. I guess they could say that uh, if you want to make an omelette, you've got to crack some eggs. But you do also have to cook those eggs, which it does help if you have planned at least a basic omelette cooking recipe in advance of cracking the eggs. And all they've done, particularly in Iraq, is jump up and down on the eggs, and now they're wondering why the Iraqis want muesli for breakfast. It's a dreadful omelette, worse than anyone could have envisioned. Now it's time for the Bugle's unique audio cryptic crossword. Each week for the next 26 weeks, the Bugle will contain a clue for its unique cryptic audio crossword. The grid is available on the website, timesonline.co.uk slash thebugle. Um including, as a special introductory offer, two free letters to get you started. So you have to fill in your answer each week, and then next April, anyone who successfully completed the entire crossword will win the right to treat themselves to a cup of tea. So here is the first clue. One across for the crossword. Pay attention. It's eight letters long. Bangers made by wise men all around America... The cheap ones may contain pig's testicles. And that is a great section of the bugle to listen to while sitting on the toilet. <laughs> Business news now. Um, crisp manufacturers have been accused of putting too much salt in their crisps, thus damaging the health of children. Those manufacturers have hit straight back by merely pointing out, all we're trying to do is make your children easier to float. We're heroes. Next time little Timmy falls into the canal and bobs straight back up to the surface, we expect a strongly worded thank you letter from you ungrateful hippies. The FTSE 100 index fell by a record 4,138 points yesterday morning after traders across the world realised that the whole of the global economy is based on increasingly ludicrous speculation about non-existent financial fantasies and that their entire existence is essentially futile. However, the markets recovered in the afternoon when they remembered that they simply don't care. The US this week announced the federal budget deficit fell to $162 billion, the lowest in five years. However, the national debt is still $9 trillion, the largest in the world. And yet you don't see Africa donning drop-the-debt wristbands for them, do you? All we want is a bit of consistency. Bugle Arts and Entertainment. Andy, awards are a vapid, self-serving exercise in futility at the very best of times, but with the Nobel Prize season upon us, the world really has been abuzz with speculation as to who will take the prize for physics. Now, of course, as we know, in the end, it went to Albert Fair and Peter Grunberg for their discovery of the giant magnetoresistance. 
You sound you sound the way you said that, John. Sounds like you've almost never heard of giant magneto resistance. Well, not only have I heard of it, Andy, I thought of it first. Oh, did you? Yeah, and if it wasn't for Furt and Grunberg chasing gongs, I'd be standing in front of the Nobel Prize Committee today saying, "Yes, yes, take that, Grunberg, take that, Furt." <laughs> Uh, uh, but Furt, Furt uh, upon receipt of his award, screamed, I'm king of the world, before being dragged off the stage, whilst Grunberg simply burst into tears and thanked God and the Nobel Committee. <laughs> uh, their invention was uh, credited with revolutionising hard disk technology, and I read on the internet that without it, you would not be able to store more than one song on your iPod. <laughs> now, this raises two issues. One, why does anyone need more than one song? Surely Born on the Bayou by Credence Clearwater Revival should be more than enough for anyone. <laughs> and B, let us assume that Apple, shrewd business folk that they have proved themselves to be, would not have marketed a one-song-capacity iPod, albeit that it probably would have looked really nice and have been a bit of a fashion accessory. Well, it would have been user-friendly as well. Very user-friendly, Andy. But it is reaching a um, very exciting stage now, the Nobel Prizes. We now know all the winners... Uh, and um, the draw has been made for the knockout stages to get the eventual Nobel uh, champion, and science has been drawn against peace. Uh, home advantage could be crucial. If it's in a chemistry lab, I know who my money's on, although they have been testing peace on animals recently. True, and it just doesn't work. It's almost as if they don't want to get on. Um, now, in this troubled world, Andy, it is often difficult to find ways to be proud to be British, but... If uh, any of the listeners would like one of those ways, look up Doris Lessing upon her realisation that she had won the Nobel Prize for Literature because she was out shopping with her husband and uh, <laughs> she was coming back in a taxi uh, to be greeted by a flank of American photographers saying, you've won the Nobel Prize for Literature, how do you feel? She and her artichoke-wielding husband <laughs> looked slightly crestfallen. She said, oh Christ, really? Oh and then tried to shove her way into her own house. It was a magnificent exercise in ingratitude. <laughs> that is Britain at its grudging best. That's what we do best, looking slightly sour and snubbing the rest of the world. That is, that's what won us the war, really. It pretty much that's is. That's basically the reaction when we heard that Hitler had invaded Poland. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> ah, ruined my afternoon. We also have our guest book reviewer of the week. This week, uh, our special guest reviewer is Osama bin Laden, the prominent terrorist. And he has uh, chosen his non-fiction book of the year so far. When it comes to paperback non-fiction, my book of the year so far is The Revenge of Gaia by ace science whiz James Lovelock, published by Penguin, priced £8.99, although my book club members can claim a £2 discount if, when ordering, they catawall death to the West. According to Lovelock's 240 attractively laid out pages, the planet is already doomed. As you may all well know, I'm always in favour of extreme approaches, so Lovelock certainly butters my literary muffins, albeit that his insistence at the end of the world is nigh makes me feel that I've rather been wasting my time. His persuasive prose style, reminiscent of a young Jenny Colgan, certainly made me think hard about looking into sustainable forms of terrorism. I give it an Al-Qaeda rating of four burning infidels. Cheerio! Sport now, and if my life is anything to go by, some podcast listeners might want to listen to this before the rest of the podcast. The big story in world sport this week has been Marion Jones handing back 
her Olympic gold medals from the Sydney Olympics. John, I would imagine America has quite literally been tearing itself limb from limb over this story. Well, America is ashamed of itself, or herself, over this one, and yet are we going to keep letting sports people hurt us and disappoint us in this way, Andy? Because all they're trying to do when you boil it down is get better at athletics. And, and what you have to bear in mind, Andy, is that scientists have discovered humans have reached their peak in terms of athletics without the use of banned substances. And we all knew this day would one day arrive. I don't think anyone thought we would honestly live to see the day where a man would attempt to break the no-second barrier in the 100 metres, unless that man was... 100 metres long, in which case get a urine sample out of him, that man is cheating. Uh, I, uh, when I was a schoolboy, I ran the 100 metres in 3.8 seconds. Uh, yep, is that I wasn't true? on drugs, I was in a car. But you were cheating by driving at three years old. <laughs> there was nothing explicit in the laws of school sports day that I wasn't allowed to get a lift up the track. Well, the rules were made after that race. But the uh, Olympic Committee have uh, a bit of a problem uh, here in that the woman who came second to Marion Jones uh, was Thanu, the Greek runner, who subsequently missed the 2004 Olympics uh, on, in, in a drug scandal. Uh, so the gold would have to go to the woman who came third, who no-one can remember who it was now because <laughs> they didn't write it down at the time. Um, so I think what's going to have to happen is they're actually going to have to have a rerun and get all the finalists back in the stadium in Sydney with all the people who were there at the time to recreate that moment as accurately as possible. Um, but I think it's good that uh, sporting injustices are now being rectified retrospectively because sport is littered with unjust results. Personally, I think it is time for Germany to accept that it had no right to win the 1954 Football World Cup and to give it to Hungary, who are clearly the better team, and had Puskos not been fouled out of the final, would have won. <laughs> That's true. I'd like to see that result overturned. Also, Stephen Hendry beating Jimmy White in 92 and yep. 94 in the Good World one. Championships. I think he should hand those back. He can keep 93, no complaints, 18-5. Even Jimmy's most ardent supporters couldn't argue that he deserved that one. Well, I think there should be a fairy tale rule there, Andy. You can appeal under the fairy tale rule that you should have won that match. To me, John, the surprising thing, though, uh, is that when you look at Jones's times, they were good, but they weren't that outstanding. And it suggests to me that in the 80s, they were much better at doping athletes than they are now. And I think these doping scientists have really been taking it easy for too long. And, you know, the level of cheating in athletics now is really substandard. Look at the, all the world records still stand from the 80s. Flojo, the East Germans, uh, Kratos Vilova, the famous Czech 800-metre runner. No one's even come close. Yeah, but uh, it, I didn't have to look that one up. But uh, East German scientists, Andy, they were researching performance-enhancing drugs on steroids. So I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm afraid their drugs are no longer admissible. <laughs> the thing is, sport is judged much more harshly than other areas of life, in which, um, you know, I think we'd be in favour of performance-enhancing drugs, say, if you gave them to the police to make them detect crime more efficiently. We'd all That's be in favour of that. Um, yeah. And, you know, we shouldn't be too judgmental. Churchill himself actually tested positive posthumously for nandrolone. <laughs> and his family claims it was from a le legitimate dietary supplement, but I'm afraid the UN does operate strict liability on these things, and we are going to have to hand back World War II. Oh, no. Oh, that is shameful. He used to be England's greatest Britain, and now he's a <laughs> disgrace. <laughs> Now, in the Rugby World Cup, uh, we are recording this on Friday, so we're going to have to guess what's happened in the England-France semi-final on Saturday. And I think we can safely say that either 
England will have triumphantly rampaged into yet another World Cup final after siding their way through an obliterated French team with a display of total rugby seldom seen in the history of humanity, or that France will have sneaked their way into a, to a freakishly fortuitous victory on the back of cheating, luck and hometown refereeing. One of those two will almost certainly have happened. Absolutely. See, I'm certain of one thing and less certain of another. I'm absolutely certain that Phil Vickery will have eaten one of the French players during the game. I'm just not sure who. He was overheard in the canteen asking the chef to develop him a sauce that would be nice with Olivier Milou. <laughs> but in a way, that's just what the French team would be expecting. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's a front row. But, I mean, it'd be more interesting were he to try and eat Yannick Josion a centre. Really but would. then that's a logistical problem because Josion's quite a lot quicker than him and notoriously reluctant to be eaten. <laughs> Sports shorts now. Uh, the goalkeeper for Fiji uh, was banned from New Zealand this week due to sanctions linked to a coup. And whittling down your opponent's team through historical research has really caught on. At uh, time of recording, England had traced the family trees of the French rugby union players, uh, meaning that the entire French scrum was set to be banned due to guillotine-related infractions during the French Revolution. What's an infraction, John? Oh. Uh, it is the use of a guillotine in an illegal way. Right, OK. That's a technical sporting you can use term. It, you can use it to dice carrots, otherwise <laughs> it's a sin bin. Football, a memorial service for Jose Mourinho's time in charge at Chelsea, will be held at St Peter's in the Box, Fulham, on Saturday the 20th of October. Ian Robin will read from 451, The Death of Football, poems on the pragmatism of football business. Please don't send flowers, donations to the European Institute for the Eradication of Sporting Romanticism. <laughs> And finally, some results. Bullying in the European Super Cup. Will Caster High School beat the Scuola di Santi Scalacci in Naples 18-13. A hat-trick of Chinese burns by young Matty Silverback for Will Caster there. Very promising young thug indeed. And some excellent verbal bullying by Natasha Filders caused two Italian girls to join a convent. And finally, in Greco-Roman architecture, the Parthenon beat Hadrian's Wall 3-0. Oh, bit of an upset. <laughs> Now it's time for the Bugle weather forecast. So, John, what do you think the weather's going to be like this uh, week? I think it's probably going to be a bit sunny still. A bit sunny, you know, with probably a bit of a nip in the air. No, I think it's going to be dank and wet. Well, let's see who was right next week. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. In next week's Bugle, what are China up to these days? The US election, everything's going to be fine. And a live report from the European Tantrum Throne Championships. It's quarter-final stage. Can Britain flip their lids more convincingly than when they failed to get properly riled by not being allowed seconds of pudding at the World Championships last year? So join us next Monday and every Monday for next week's Bugle. Well, it won't be next week's Bugle every Monday. That will only oh, sorry, be next yeah. week. Yeah. Although by then, the following week will have become next week. Okay, yeah, But sure. the point so, stands. John's yeah, point, point stands. Yeah. Uh, also, on the website, uh, timesonline.co.uk slash the bugle, uh, you can see what would have been the print edition of the Bugle had England's not inconsiderately reached the World Cup Rugby semi-final and had to have a pull-out about them thereby removing the Bugle pull-out but anyway there it is it's all there in all its sparkling technical colour glory on the website bye have a lovely week hi it's producer Chris from the Bugle here did you know that I have a new series of my podcast Richie Firth Travel Hacker out now it's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, 
the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.